Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm Greg B., joined today by Jacob. Hello. And we are going to be reviewing In the Name of Odin. But first, let's talk about what we've been playing. So, this week there isn't a ton of things that we've been playing. Yeah, it's pretty light. But we got to play Palace of Acting Ludwig on stream this, this week. Right. And it was a lot of fun. I think that everyone who played it really enjoyed it. It continues to be a really, really fun game. Yeah, I mean, we've definitely enjoyed it in the past. I actually wasn't there for this one, so how? what kind of shenanigans did you guys get up to this time? There was a lot more of, like, closing the uh, like people's um, actual, like, you know, surrounding things with moats and closing things off that way. Mm-hmm. I was the uh, ruler of the undergrounds in that <laughs> I had pretty much all but one of the basement tiles was mine. Wow. And... All but one of the staircases okay, was mine. That was going to be my next question. Do you yeah. also control the staircases attached to those yeah. basements? I, I controlled all the staircases attached to the basements. There was one staircase that was attached to nothing. <laughs> and that was Anna's because she needed a staircase. All right. Um, and then did you, so did you have any like utility rooms or uh, victory point tokens that synergized with underground rooms? Or did you just decide that's what you wanted to go for? So Harrison, at the very beginning, there was a utility room that would have synced very, very well with my, uh, yeah, with with the underground rooms. But he sniped it? No, he didn't snipe it. He used the ability of the hallways to throw it out. <gasps> oh, yeah. all right. New, uh, new utility there. I don't mm-hmm. think we've really taken advantage of that mechanic Yeah. in the past. So I actually did not get a single utility room in that game wow because harrison like just grabbed all but like one of them and that other one was grabbed by anna and it just like the way that they came out it was just by the time i it got to my turn they were already gone or like it was too far away right or whatever right well i mean they are they're really solid rooms so they're gonna mm-hmm. typically go like hotcakes as soon as they hit the field yeah it was interesting though uh when we were building it out we had so many times that we only had like one or two entrances left like, really? Yeah. And yet the game sort of limped on? Yeah, it limped on because the moats weren't what was closing them. It was just that we had, like, you know, just single pathways that were going through the entire castle kind of thing. And so it was it was just, like, you know, sneaking around and just, like, you know, the, for example, my whole, like, downstairs things. Like, you know, I would have a staircase that went downstairs, three rooms, uh, three basement rooms, then another staircase that went up, then like one room, and then another staircase that went down, and then another three basement rooms, and then another staircase that went up. Um, so a lot is what you're telling me. Yeah, but it was because all of those, old, each of those rooms only have like the entrance and the exit. Mm, so sure. there was no okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. bigger things. Yeah. And so that was definitely a uh, something that was that was going on for most of the time and there was a lot of that where it was just like we had a decent number of hallways but they were just in the wrong places <laughs> and we just were very very close to just having everything just filled in many times all right well there you go i saw i did tune into the stream a little bit actually mm-hmm. i saw that you had uh, a courtyard for the first time yeah because i don't think we've had one of those did it end up getting filled with a moat? Yes. Okay. Uh, both uh, We had one tiny one, which was only one space. Mm-hmm. And then we had a bigger one that was like four spaces. Oh, wow. And both of them got filled in. Wow. That's yeah. really big. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. No, it, it was interesting. Like the, the castle was built quite in, in an interesting way, for mm-hmm. sure. And Anna ended up winning. Uh, she did a good job with that. And 
in general, it was, it was just a lot of fun. I I enjoy the game. Most of the things that are going on there are just interesting in mm-hmm. terms of like how they all combine, you know, helping someone else and not helping someone else. I I was Lord of the Secret Swans, which was also fun, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> especially since I the I got a lot of the the conditions like the win conditions at the end, but I was too far behind on other points. Actually, in, sure, yeah, in order to uh, to pull it out. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean it's definitely a fun game. So hopefully I'll uh, you know I'll join you guys for the next one, and we'll. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I'm still, I'm still looking forward to the day where we actually get like a proper gigantic, sprawling castle. Mm. And I think there's just there's something about the things that you have to do in order to achieve that that we just haven't. Been I think doing. you just need more players. That could also be. I think if we play with a full contingent, I think it goes up to four players. So like if we play full, I don't think we've done it a single time with everyone. So I think maybe once, but that's it. Yeah. So that that would be a lot of fun to check out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, besides that, I did get to play uh, Nemo's War. I almost said Finding Nemo. <laughs> <laughs> um, Finding which, Nemo's I War. I mean, for the imperialist powers, that was basically what it was, Finding mm-hmm. Nemo. But no, so I played Nemo's War for the first time. I picked this up at the uh, Labyrinth Used Game Sale, mm-hmm. which was a couple of months ago now. But I, I hadn't busted it out yet, so I did. I was like, you know what? I've got the day off, and... I, you know, don't feel like doing any chores, so I'm going to bust out this new board game. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, It's really, really compelling. I'll keep it pretty short here just because there's so much that we could talk about. I could take up the entire rest of the episode talking about this, but lots of replayability. Mm -hmm. I think it was one of the first things I noticed is that you're only, in any given game, you're only playing with about half of the available upgrades you're only playing with about a third of the available event cards and you're playing with one of what are called motives one mm-hmm. of four motives which are basically scoring conditions mm-hmm. so these are basically what captain nemo's motive is you can have science exploration anti-imperialism or war okay each of those motives gives you radically different scoring conditions so for the first game the rule book recommended exploration so that's what i was playing so i got seven times multiplier for what are called wonder points Mm -hmm. uh, which is things like discovering natural wonders like the marianas trench or various like straits yeah and also things for sort of supernatural so like the lost city of atlantis or parting the red sea Mm -hmm. or things like that and so those were worth tons of points but sinking warships was worth less points than normal yeah which i i didn't take a look at the war motive tile uh, but I imagine that would have been reversed, if not oh, you know, sure. even more dramatic. So it it definitely it really drastically changes your approach to things mm-hmm. because the the end game scoring condition is sort of a point salad. Uh, okay. You've got points from the ships that you sank and where and how you sank them, how much crew you have remaining, how many wonders you've encountered, how many scientific advancements you've made, what the treasures that you've uncovered, the adventures that you went on. Like there's like a dozen different things that you have that all get modified by your motive so in this game is it can you win the game or is it just either you get points or you lose you do okay so yeah no this is good i lost in Mm -hmm. my game there's three sort of instant loss conditions and this is an oversimplification but basically if your notoriety gets too high if you have to place a warship and can't Mm -hmm. or 
or if one of your three primary stats is reduced to its lowest value. So your stats are Nemo, which basically represents your own personal sanity, basically. Mm -hmm. Broken is the lowest one on that. Crew, which is dead, is the lowest one on that. Your crew is all dead. Uh, And Hull, which is shattered. If the if the Nautilus mm-hmm. itself is destroyed, you obviously lose. Yeah, so if you because don't, then you don't either have sanity or crew. <laughs> right, 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 right. You have none of the above. But so if you don't trigger any of the three of those, then it turns into point salad, and you get to compile your total score. And from that, you get there's a book called Epilogues, mm-hmm. and there's five ratings from defeat, which I think is actually the one that you read if you triggered one of the three conditions, and then the others are failure inconsequential success and triumph okay i think is the best one Mm -hmm. so you're sort of graded on a a curve almost sort of like the end of pandemic legacy yeah where you know you've got a bunch of different point scoring conditions and based on how many total points you have you you fall into a different like epilogue band so like you know you can win quote win you can finish the game but have failed in your goal and not actually made a name for yourself you haven't discovered anything worthwhile or you haven't you know whatever blah you know sunk enough ships if your war is motive is war something like that all the way up to like your name will be remembered for millennia to come so it is it is really interesting and also i think fairly satisfying from sort of a narrative theme perspective is that you know nemo you have a goal and you know it's not just about a a binary you fulfilled that goal or not it's about your legacy Mm -hmm. Uh, so i think this is a fairly elegant way of factoring in whether or not not just whether you win or lose but by how much that's cool yeah no that seems like a really interesting game i've also had it sitting on my shelf but uh part of the reason that i haven't played it was because the rule book was extremely dense when i did try to open it it is i will say that the rules are uh they're a lot yeah it, it, there there's a lot going on there's so many rules that it's a hard to keep track of and b hard to even just like figure them out sometimes it's like okay well wait what does this mean or what is this referring to so uh there's definitely there's a lot there but it's also interesting just because this is a game that without the stretch goals would have just been a single player game Um, right which is i mean part of the reason it appeals to me yeah exactly Uh, dedicated solo game is not something that you see a lot yeah something that was conceived and designed from the ground up as a solo game and then afterwards they were like okay well we'll put a co-op mode in there like it's usually vice versa yeah exactly so that was really interesting for me and i was glad to kind of take it for a test run mm-hmm. yeah for sure and i'm looking forward to trying out the co-op mode um and maybe i'll even try the solo mode after i learn the game when we play together there you go but i'm i'm definitely really looking forward to it because i do like the whole twenty thousand leagues underneath uh, beneath the sea like, it, it's just a fun story and i would love to see how well that theme just translates yeah yeah i mean i actually haven't read uh, the novel, but mm. uh, it seems very well integrated. Most of the event cards that you draw have what I believe are quotes drawn straight from the book. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, included on them. So, yeah, it's very, very highly thematic, uh, very well integrated with everything. All right. Well, cool. I'll have to play that sometime soon. Damn straight. And there you have it. That's a look at what we've been playing. Odin, all father. I beseech thee, grant me victory in this battle. 
Puny mortal, what do you call the Allfather for? What battle is this that you need assistance with? I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to win this board game. Board game? Do you have room for one more? I mean I mean yeah, it, it plays up to five. You want in? Yes. Move on. <laughs> So there you go. If we think if Odin was going to play any board game, it would probably be in the name of Odin. Uh, I mean, it's named after him. Right. It's named after him. Great Viking content. Really compelling gameplay. So let's get into it. Yeah. So first off, let's talk a little bit about how to play the game itself. The game revolves really around the action cards. And these action cards are multi-use cards that have two actions on each card. You have either the recruitment action, which allows you to recruit Vikings of a certain color or a certain class in this way, or the actual like actions. So the, the actions themselves have to do with either recruiting heroes, building buildings, or getting ships and repairing ships. Exactly. And so on any given turn, you're going to have a hand full of these cards and you have to decide what you want to do with them. So... Do you want to recruit your Vikings so that you can go on raids later, or do you want to sort of invest? You can't go on a raid without a hero, which means you need to spend some yellow actions to recruit. You can't go on raids without a longship, so you need to spend some purple actions to acquire a longship. And then green actions, uh, building, construction, Mm. are just super useful all around. So you're going to want to spend some time building up your infrastructure, getting free actions, assorted bonuses here and there, and doing all that sort of thing. But it's really hard to win if you lose sight of the raids. Yeah, no, the raids are the main thing. And even even if you had the best layout of your, your game in general, you would be able to get... If, if you didn't go on any raids, you, got 18, you get 18 points. If you have three in all the different spots. Yeah, basically. So that is not a winning score. And so... The other thing is that the raids are what determines when the game ends. Right. So once every raid that is in the game, and you don't actually play with all the raids on every game, you choose based on the number of players. Three players is 10 raids. Two players is eight raids. So you you get rid of most of them and put them back in the box. And then when the last raid has been completed, the game ends immediately. There are no more actions on a turn. No one else gets to do anything. It is just over point scoring. Right, exactly. So given that raids are so important, let's jump into these a little bit. What yeah. does a raid actually look like in this game? So a raid, you've got essentially a site. You've got a city during the Viking Age, you know, Dublin or London or what have you, mm-hmm. that you're choosing as your target. And each of those things has a point value, which it's going to be worth. And each of those things has a number of Vikings shown on the card. There's three different colors of Vikings. You've got blue, black, and red. And the combination shown on the card tells you exactly how many you have to expend from your own board in order to successfully make that raid. So, for example, uh, the raid of Rye requires that you contribute four blue, one black, and one red Viking in order to even go on that raid. And the other part of raiding is that 
you have a certain distance from where you are that, that the raids are going to be. So there are certain raids that are one distance, and then you don't really need a great ship to get there. Uh, you've got other ones that are two distance, which actually give you more victory points as well. And then there's one raid that can be all the way out at three distance, which gives you an extra two victory points if you actually manage to complete it. The raids at two and three distance also have an additional variable, which is the this token that, that you put there that shows that you need an additional uh, red, black, or blue Viking in order to do these raids. Once you've fulfilled all the requirements of the raid, so you have all of the uh, you have the long ships that you need, or the long ship that you need, the Vikings that you need, and you're able to expend them, your raid succeeds. That's just it's done. It's you. You were able to complete the the raid. Now the cool part here is that there's a mechanic that gives you like the amount of your success. Like, did you barely succeed and scrape by, or did you succeed like and pillage everything that you could in that city? And this is done through the other players as well as the deck sometimes adding cards that are like the complications. And these are the actions on the bottom of the card. So it could be the, the building, the recruiting, or the, the shipping, the shipwright Ship, action. Shipwrightery? Yes, shipwrightery action. And three of these get put out no matter what. But your opponents have a chance to choose if they want to use one from their hand in order to mess with you. And this can be uh, good to do because, A, you get to replace that card at the end of the raid. But B, you also know what that other person has been using this turn. So if they just built a building and used all of their greens, which are pretty rare in general, you can use one of your greens and be like, hey, you are not going to be able to get this, so you're going to get less points or not as many as, as you could in general. Yeah, it's a really interesting mechanic that sort of gives you some flexibility while also ensuring that you're never going to get nothing for an action. You know, in the yeah. absolute worst case scenario, you're facing down three symbols you can't match any of them. You're going to lose two points on mm -hmm. that raid. There is no raid in the game that's only worth two points. Yep. So you're always going to come away with at least something, and you might come away with even a bonus point, which just, it feels a lot better as a player. You know, you're not worried about, oh, is my raid going to fail? Is my raid going to succeed? You're more just focused on, okay, how can I optimize these benefits while still accepting that there is a little bit of risk? So I think it's definitely a very compelling mechanic, but... One way or another, you know, your opponents mess with you or they don't, you overcome the modifiers or you don't, you collect your points, and then your longship takes damage and is considered away from shore. So you flip it over. It has to be reshored, and you may want to repair it before you send it out again because each point of damage decreases its effective range if it doesn't destroy it outright. Mm -hmm. Additionally, you lose the hero that you sent on that raid. And you're going to have to invest in another hero before you go back out again. So the game is very cyclical. You're going to take, you know, the, the actions that you can take on your turn are limited only by the cards in your hand. So you can do a lot in any given turn, but there's still going to be, okay, this is a turn of building up versus, okay, this is a turn where I go on a raid. Yeah. And it's a lot of that sort of up and down cyclical nature. Mm -hmm. And let's talk a little bit about the heroes themselves and, and some of the other things that you have on the cards. So the heroes are interesting because they, first of all, count as one of one of the three types of Vikings. So uh, that's one less of the actual figurines that you need to put back. 
but they also have their uh, either raid or non-raid abilities. And these can be really powerful. They can mitigate like, the cards that come out in the complications phase. They can give you extra Vikings. They can allow you to not have to discard them at the end of a raid and other such things. So there are some really interesting uh, abilities that they have. And so they are not the only thing either that can actually discount the cost of a raid. So you, you have the discount based on whatever color your hero is, but also your ships can, all, can have discounts. Many of them have, you know, choose one of any color or like this one is just a red discount. So this helps you for any red raids and all that kind of stuff. And there are even some buildings that can give you discounts on these raids. The buildings, however, a lot more times they give you discounts on the actual actions that you're doing while you're preparing for the raids. Yeah, buildings are definitely something that you invest in in order to get more effective actions. Almost all of them have a free action symbol at the top. So the forge, for example, every forge gives you one free construction. Every shipyard gives you one free shipwriter reaction. And so these can't be used to meet the modified uh, raid conditions, obviously, because you can't bring a building with you on your longship. Yep. But they can be used to sort of increase your action economy while you're at home. So investing in these pretty early can give you a really powerful boost but you gotta, as we mentioned, make sure that you pivot to a raid sooner or later because that's where a bulk of your points are gonna come from. And building itself is, is pretty interesting because as you build more, the, the cost of it increases. Yeah. So it starts with uh, you having to purchase a building token and that costs one plus the number of buildings and building tokens that you have in your possession. And so the first one costs one. So you get, it costs one green, boom, get a building token. Then the building costs three. And now every time you need to get another building token, that increases the cost, increases the cost. So it's almost impossible to, within the game, get a full board of five buildings. Yeah, very, very hard to do. Even if you're gunning straight for it, simply mm -hmm. because the cost of a single building token gets to the point where you need five greens in, out of your you know six available cards just to even acquire the building token and then you need three more to execute the build action so it becomes increasingly onerous over time in a way that other actions don't you know hiring a hero always costs an amount based on the the tableau and that's static that's stuck to the board uh, building a ship re repairing a ship reshoring a ship always costs the same amount of shipwright reactions so there's almost a I mean, there is almost a pivot. You know, you want to build a couple of buildings early and then say, okay, now this is starting to become inefficient and I'm going to mm -hmm. focus on, you know, shipping or, or heroes and raiding and whatnot. You know, it doesn't have to be that way, but that is sort of a natural flow for the game. So one of the cool things about this game is that you don't actually have to build a single building in this entire game and you can still win. Mm -hmm. You can just keep focusing on the raids and just getting more of your Vikings and and just cycling through that really quickly because there are so few raids in a single game you could get like the majority of them and that'll give you a lot more points than someone who you know went and and built up uh, up some of the buildings and the other thing is that the green actions are actually i'm pretty sure the least common of the actions i don't think that there's an even split yeah i don't know what the breakdown is but i'm i would not be surprised if that were the case yeah so they are 
rarer, so it's a lot more difficult to get the number that you need in order to build like more more buildings. So it can be easy at the beginning, but let's say you draw your first hand and you have a lot of, you know, shipwright actions or a lot of these kinds of things, and you just go ahead and buy a longship and go on a raid on your second turn. Like that can that can just give you a, a boost just as well as, as a building itself. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I think overall In the Name of Odin has a lot of strengths. Uh, certainly the cards that you're using, sort of these multi-use cards, they're very simple. You know, sometimes you run into p- situations where people try to get too fancy with it. You know, they try to make 17 different functions on a single card and each of them has their own designated area. This is just, there's a top action, it's one of three colors. There's a bottom action, it's one of three different colors. You yeah. know, very simple, but very effective. So I think that's uh, definitely a strong point. I also think one of the things about this game is that there's not a lot of downtime. You know, there's definitely some, you know, ebb and flow, right? We talked about it where you have to spend some time building up. But because there's no there's no opportunity cost for drawing, you simply draw back up to your maximum hand size at the end of every turn. You don't have to worry about, oh, do I need to keep this in hand for next turn? No, you're just you're spending all of your stuff every single turn and it keeps the pace of play very quick. Uh, which I think is something that the game benefits from very greatly. Oh, for sure. I, I like all that. And then like the, the other actions, the way that you can actually trade one of your cards that you have in your hand for a tableau of cards that, that are out. Yeah, That very helps useful. you like, customize and make it so that there is no single turn that you are like, I can't do anything that's going to help me. Right. And this is this is the type of mechanic that we've asked for, actually, yeah. explicitly on this mm-hmm. podcast. Yes, for sure. You know, we've said game x would really benefit from a mechanic where you could recycle cards that you don't want in the name of odin has that yeah um so it's really great to see that they put a lot of thought into fixing this sort of like mid-game slog of you know having Mm -hmm. a tableau that no one's interested in taking from that just sits out for the entire rest of the game so there's ways to address that uh in in this game and i think it does it very successfully yeah for sure that all being said no game is perfect. Right. There's definitely things that In the Name of Odin does uh, less successfully, perhaps not mm-hmm. at all successfully. And I think one of them is the components. Yeah. So the components in this game, it's really interesting because I think overall, if you average out the product- production value on this game, it's great. Yeah. But they decided to do something which... I don't quite understand and I don't really like. So what they did was they created sculpts of miniatures for, you know, the red, the black, and the blue Vikings. They're really not good. No. They are flimsy plastic. They're like bending in half. None of the weapons are actually straight. They're all just like curvy and bendy and just not nice. And they don't even fit on the board. Like the the space that is reserved for that doesn't actually have enough space to have all of these things standing up. It's almost as if they they had thought about using something else, like whether it's wooden tokens or something like that, and then decided to switch it into the actual miniatures because everyone loves miniatures. Right. I think this is something that feels very much like a, ooh, let's jump on this bandwagon rather than any sort of like conscious you know, decision about what would work best for the game. And I think, you know, just making that switch, even, you know, you mentioned wooden chits, I think that would be great. Even just little cardboard tokens, I think that would be fine. And then you put the money that you saved from that into 
you know, upgrading the uh, the Viking tokens that denote what extra thing you have to spend into making the player mats a little bit thicker, a little bit more substantial, into custom art for the ship cards, which yep. the, the art on the back of the ship card is great, but it doesn't vary from ship to ship. Only the, the sort of stat blocks vary. Whereas, you know, the heroes, gorgeous, lovingly rendered. Each of the heroes is completely distinct. If they took a lot of that and sort of spread it out, maybe, I don't know, up their art budget. And again, all of this is coming from a place of, you know, I don't know what goes into designing a game, but it seems to me that you could save some money by not doing these sort of weak-ass sculpts, if I'm being honest, and put it into other aspects of the game that would just make it more satisfying to play. Exactly, and I think that it may have almost originally been like that, and then they, they switched it last minute because that's what it feels like almost. Right. The other thing, though, is the rule book. The rules of this game are jumbled. They have like there, there is some semblance of like a, a pattern or path through the rule book, but at the same time, there are things that should have been mentioned two pages earlier that are then like the last sentence of the rule book on like the second to last page kind of thing. I won't say that it's straight up missing rules, like they're not printed, but it is definitely not laid out very intuitively. If you're looking for a rule, there's a decent chance that it won't be in the section that you would think it is. And in fact, it would be, as Jacob mentioned, in a completely unrelated section several pages away. So when you're in the middle of play, that can be really, really disruptive, especially because there's sort of a flow to reading a rule book. Everything is related to everything else. And if it's laid out in a way that doesn't make sense, where those relationships aren't apparent, then it's not going to stick. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. just there's not a useful mnemonic device there that allows players to sort of absorb that information. It's going to be tacked on as an afterthought, which means they're going to treat it as an afterthought and they're probably going to forget it. So exactly. rules definitely lacking, which is something they could just, you know, release a second edition. Yeah. Edit the rules a little bit. Edit the rules, change where the production value goes in, and you've got yourself a really good game. And on that note, let's talk about what we actually think of the game. Right. I think this is a great game. You know, you actually spent a long time trying to convince me to play this. Mm -hmm. Not that it was hard, just that I was always wanting to play something else. And now that I've played it a couple of times, I think it's great. I, I think it's a really well-designed game. I think it's solid. I think the mechanics are very well balanced against one another. You know, buildings are strong, but getting an early edge on raiding and getting to choose your targets compared to other people rather than having to just take the leftovers is also really powerful. So very balanced there. Like I mentioned, I think that the sort of multi-use cards, this is one of the best executions of that particular mechanic I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And I think that more than anything, the game also feels balanced in terms of the time that it takes you know as you get to the end of the game you're pretty much reaching almost this this apotheosis you've got many of your buildings if you've gone for a building strategy but probably not all you've been on many raids and you've gotten a lot of points from those but you still feel like you want to do more which i think is a perfect place to end it because if it kept going then it would get boring because you're like well i can do everything i want to do or i have already done everything yeah. I want to do. So I think the length, the mechanics, all very well calibrated. I think it's a great game. Suffers a little bit for the components, but that still doesn't mean that I'm not going to give it a buy it. There we go. 
I'm going to echo that as well. This game for me is a lot of fun. Like I said, I I was trying to get Greg to play it for a while. This has actually some of the best balance, like in terms of mechanics that I have seen in a board game recently. There are the way that you have multiple paths to victory, whether you go straight raiding or whether you're, you balance building and raiding. You've also got the mechanic that I absolutely adore, which is the, the one that you mess with other people when you are, when they're going on raids. And I think that that is just such a well done mechanic in terms of a, you get to, you know, try to get someone to lose some points in there and it's like, but not enough that, that they're actually failing at anything, but you also get to replace one of your cards that you might not want. So you can plan for something else on your turn. The artwork on a lot of it is really, really well uh, well done. I think the symbols, the symbology of, of it is really uh, done well. And in general, once you get to start playing it, it is very intuitive. So I definitely, definitely will put this on my buy list, especially because it plays two to five players. Yeah, very flexible in terms of player count. So like, you don't have all that many games that play up to five. This is one of them. And it's really well done. Well, there you go. Double buy it for In the Name of Odin. Real quick before we go, we're going to talk about a few games that we think are similar. If you like them, you might like this and vice versa. The first of these is Above and Below. It may not seem super obvious, but I think there's a lot of similarity there in terms of this cyclical nature of, okay, you're going to spend some turns investing and then you're going to have a payoff. You're going to go on that exploration or you're going to purchase that big building that you were looking for. So there's a lot of similarities in terms of just the pace of gameplay mm-hmm. and the style of gameplay. There's also some overlap with how players interact with one another. You're not interacting as directly as you would be in the name of Odin, but Above and Below does also have this mechanic where you're almost fighting for who can get the thing first. You know, Who can build this building first versus who can go on this really lucrative raid first. So a lot of similarity in some of the ways that players have to approach the game tactically and simultaneously obviously very different theme but i think if you like a lot of the core mechanics and a lot of the underpinnings of one or the other of these games it's definitely worth checking out the other yeah definitely um the other one is a lot more thematically similar and this is raiders of the north sea i think that raiders a i mean theme wise if you like vikings raiders in the name of odin you've got viking games there you go But it goes beyond that because of the whole idea of raiding. And this is definitely apparent in Raiders of the North Sea because you're still building up all the resources that you need in order to get and go on these different raids. And it's the same kind of thing where it's like you you see what other people are building up and what they're building up for. And you can try to race them to uh, this raid or that raid. And like even if you don't get that one, you might look next door and be like, I guess I could just get this other one. And there's also a lot of cost-benefit analysis with that, same as uh, in the name of Odin. And also the whole cyclical nature of it. Because with raiders, you're you know placing your, your worker on a space and then picking up a different worker. And so you have to like plan a few turns ahead of time in order to know like when you have the right worker after you have the right things in order to go on this raid. So it has a similar feel to that as well. So if you like Raiders of the North Sea, definitely check out In the Name of Odin and vice versa. Well, there you go. That's our review of In the Name of Odin. 
Thank you all for joining us for this review of In the Name of Odin. We hope that you enjoyed it. Be sure to tune in to our Twitch and YouTube streams, which are happening on Wednesdays and Fridays. We will be playing some Gloomhaven on Friday, and on Wednesday we will be playing some Massive Darkness, which should be a lot of fun as well. We here at Dragons and Mize also love your feedback. We love hearing from you guys. So one of the ways that we do that is we see your reviews. So if you are listening on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, anything like that, leave us a review. We will be reading those out as they come in uh, from all these different platforms. And if you have any other place that you think that we should be putting the podcast, please let us know and uh, we will try to get it on there as well. Also, be sure to check out our YouTube channel for our videos there. We have a lot of cool stuff up there and more coming. And be sure to join us next week when we will be doing another RPG special.